morning. Let's try it one more time. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. That was fun, Matt. I feel like we needed to clear some pews and have a little bit of an area where we could do a jig or some That's dosey going. That's the 10.30 service. The 10.30. Okay. So if you want to actually have some dancing with that first song, come back to the second service. It is good to see everyone. It feels full in here this morning. I don't know if that's because we're doing our sign-ups a little bit differently or just because uh, of who God has brought to join us for worship and community today, but it's good to see you all. Many familiar faces, of course, but I know a few visitors too, so welcome to you guys. Um, If you have not been with us to this point, then um, let me just kind of fill you in as to where we're at. We had been in the Gospel of Matthew for, goodness, the last year, and then Um, Each Advent, we typically will take a break, so we'll get back to Matthew. Um, But uh, Advent last year and this has been a little bit different for us. It's, of course, still about trying to build anticipation in ourselves um, to what can be so easily taken for granted, Christmas, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, And so in order to make that a little bit harder for us to take for granted, we stepped away last year in this from the traditional themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, and we love those themes. We'll get back to them, I'm sure, at some point, but instead we've been spending time talking about the names of God and the way that that is connected to the goal of building anticipation and excitement towards the arrival of Jesus and the future anticipation of his return is because when we look at the names of God in the Old Testament, they're really revelations about himself, something about his character and his nature. But they all are pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the total and ultimate fulfillment of those revealed names of God in the Old Testament in the New, at the birth of Jesus, the incarnation when God became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's why we're looking at the names of God. Um, And uh, last year we looked at four. This year we're looking at four fresh and new ones. Last week we looked at Jehovah Jireh. This week we're going to be looking at a a name of God, Jehovah Makedesh. And this means the God who sanctifies. Um, Sanctifies is just kind of a fancy word for makes holy or makes more like himself, like Christ. And this name comes from, uh, can be found in multiple places, but comes from Leviticus chapter 20 in verses 7 and 8, which says this, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. There it is. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Jehovah Makedesh. All right? So we're going to dig into that in a few moments. But this name, because it communicates something to us about what God has done for us, um, in order to understand why he has done this for us, we first have to understand why he would need to do this for us, why it's needed And so we must understand something of God's own holiness first. So that's where I want to start, is just by talking about what does it mean that our God is holy? The holiness of God, in simplest terms, is God's set-apartness, his, I like this term, his otherness, his utter difference, differentness than that of the world, especially a fallen and broken world. And that can be difficult to understand, what it means that our God is holy, precisely because it's what makes God different than us and different than this world. It's hard to understand that which we are not. Uh, Another way of describing God's holiness could simply be his purity or his perfection. And so God's holiness is both what makes him beautiful and awesome, and I don't mean like awesome, dude, I mean like awe-inspiring, 
worthy of our worship, but at the same time, God's holiness is what makes him dangerous, in particular to sinners. An analogy to kind of help draw that tension out um, is perhaps the sun. From afar, the sun is beautiful, and by virtue of its light, it sheds light on God's creation and um, reveals its beauty. Uh, Earlier this week, we had a lot of rain, really all week we had a lot of rain, but Monday we had a full day of rain. Tuesday, it started out raining, and my daughter, Dahlia, three years old, said to me, Daddy, is it raining again? When's the sun going to come out? And it was... I mean, it couldn't have been a minute or two later, and you may remember this yourself, or at least if you live in Saratoga, where it was kind of on and off with it still raining, but the sun coming out in between the clouds and just kind of illuminating everything, all those drops of water falling from the sky or dripping off the trees and the roof, and and it was beautiful. It changed the landscape in an instant, the light of the sun. Instead of having kind of this shadow of flat gray, dreariness everywhere, in an instant, The sun coming out brought contrast and texture and dimension and all of a sudden that which was kind of flat and gray was full of vivid color and that's the difference the sun makes. It inspires hope and awe. My daughter was super excited and my son as well who was in a nearby room when they saw the sun come out after a day and a half of rain. But if you and I were to get up too close to the sun, we would be in big trouble. We we would burn up. I mean, if you spend a, you know, too long at the beach without sunblock on, you're going to turn into a lobster, right? So if we were to actually physically get close to the sun, we would be fried. In the case of God, in the case of um, how he made us to be, you and I were made to be in the presence of God. We were designed to be able to walk on the surface of the sun, per se, originally, when everything was good, before sin, without any kind of injury, But sin made God's holiness something that is dangerous for sinners. It's like we went from being one of the sun's flares at creation when God called everything good, the same brightness and purity and temperature as the sun, to something now that was all of a sudden frail and combustible. This is why, by the way, Adam and Eve hid from God after they sinned. They they were terrified of him because impurity and sin and wickedness does not mix with the holiness of God. Now, let me try to make this attribute of God's holiness a little bit more tangible and concrete for us. We know now that God's holiness is his otherness, his set-apartness, his purity, but that still can be a little bit nebulous and abstract for us until we realize that that attribute of God's can be applied to other characteristics that you and I are familiar with, okay? Here's what I mean by that. You and I have categories for things like love and justice and power and goodness and so on and so forth. We at least have categories of understanding for these things, right? So humanity has, for example, expressions that we would call love. We make attempts at seeking justice and doing good in this world. Humans wield power in their relative spheres of influence. We can understand these things to an extent. The difference when it comes to God, that God is holy, means that he embodies those things in their purest form. The most pure form of any attribute or characteristic you can think of is what it means that God is holy. So holiness isn't so much a separate attribute of God's 
like love and goodness and justice and so on, as it is an attribute that describes the quality of all of God's other attributes, that he is pure in all of those various ways. One theologian describes what would happen if God's attributes were not accompanied by holiness, or if they were no longer accompanied by holiness. Here's what he says. Power without holiness would degenerate into cruelty. Omniscience, that is God's all-knowingness, that he knows everything, without holiness would be used for deception. Justice without holiness would degenerate into revenge, and goodness without holiness would be passionate and excessive foolishness, doing mischief rather than accomplishing good. You can see how these traits that we would otherwise be familiar with would degenerate apart from God's holiness. And we can understand that to a degree, right? Because these are characteristics that are expressed by mankind, even by ourselves, without holiness. Which is why sometimes it's hard for us to even fathom these things in God, in his holiness because we're so accustomed to the tainted version of all of these things. And so what happens is in our state of unholiness and because of our sin, not only do we have a hard time understanding God's holiness conceptually, but we are cut off from his presence. Again, the idea of being these frail and combustible beings now coming into contact with the sun. But hear this, please, because not only is God's holiness what separates us from him and makes in a sense, him dangerous to us as sinners, but it's also God's holiness that provides a pathway to forgiveness and redemption. Here's what I mean by that. We just considered what other attributes of God would degenerate to apart from his holiness. Now consider God's love, for example. God's love without holiness would aim to please others so long as it did something for him in return. Right? Isn't that how so much of love in this world works? I'll serve you, I'll take care of you, I'll enjoy you, I'll like you, so long as I'm getting something in return. Right? But the moment that you're no longer providing something beneficial in my life, the, the moment that our relationship poses more trouble and headaches than it does comfort and pleasure to me, the moment that you no longer make me happy, my love is withdrawn. I mean, that's conditional love, which isn't really love at all, after all, at least not holy love, but that's the inevitable course of love that's untethered from God's holiness. So the reason, then, why it's God's holiness that provides a pathway to forgiveness and redemption for sinners is because his love is so completely other than that of the world. It's not conditioned upon what he gets from you and I in return. He doesn't forsake his creation the moment that we stop bringing joy to him. God's holy love means that he pursued you and I when we were at our worst. When our lives essentially said to God, I have no need of you. You just aren't doing it for me anymore. And yet he still pursued us. That is an otherworldly love. The exclamation point being that while we were pursuing our own sinful desires, this holy and pure God, who would have been right to incinerate us because of our rebellion, sacrificed his life instead in order to redeem us. That's holy love. And by the way, that's holy justice too. Because there needs to be a price paid for our cosmic rebellion, our cosmic treason against God. 
It's just that he took that upon himself allow, rather than allowing that to fall to you and I. Okay, so hopefully we've laid some groundwork for understanding what does it mean that our God is holy and what are the implications for us as sinners? This is where I want to switch gears now and talk about the name Jehovah Makedesh and uh, its implications for us as well. The God who sanctifies us. He's doing something for us. He's making us holy. Why and how? Okay, first, the timing with which God reveals himself as Jehovah Makedesh is really important and is key in communicating something about what he means, what he's revealing. We've encountered multiple names so far in our Names of God series, both last year and this. Some of those chronologically have come before this one, Jehovah Makedesh. So for example, even last week, when we talked about Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, this name that means the God who sees and provides for our needs, we saw that what God was doing was that he was providing in light of a, a desperate spiritual state and need that his people had. So with Abraham, for example, the whole reason God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac, the whole reason sacrifices were in place was because of man's sin and there being separation between man and God. But at the very last minute, God provides a substitute for Isaac, a ram instead, as a way to reunite his relationship with man with Abraham. We didn't talk about this last week, but God reveals himself again as Jehovah Jireh in the Passover scene in the book of Exodus, where God's people in Egypt for 400 years have been there enslaved, and God is looking to deliver them through Moses. And so he um, performs all these miracles, all these different plagues to kind of, you know, wake up Egypt and Pharaoh into the reality of, I am the one true God, let my people go. And he gets to this 10th and final plague which is where he promises, I will take the firstborn son of, the, of everyone in the land indiscriminately, not just the Egyptians, but his own people, Israel, as well, except Jehovah Jireh. God sees the need and he provides. He says, if you take a spotless, unblemished lamb and you sacrifice it and take some of that blood and put it over the doorpost, when the angel of death comes to your house, it'll see that blood, that substitute, and it will pass over you and not take the firstborn, the life of the firstborn in that house. Jehovah Jireh. See, God, in revealing himself in this way, sees his people's helpless need, helplessness and inability to do anything about their spiritually broken state, and they should have faced the consequences. Hear that. They should have faced the consequences, but God provides a substitute. This is one of the first names in the chronology of the Bible that God reveals to his people. Kind of important, right? Like his provision of a way to restore his relationship with man. We also came across last year, I think, Madison, you were the one who preached on Jehovah Nisi, right? So this name that means the Lord is our banner or our victory, right? It was that scene in which Moses was trying to keep his staff up in the air long enough so that his people could fight against and defeat the Amalekites. And through that whole uh, event, God was teaching his people Israel, victory only comes through me, but I will provide the strength for you if you trust in me. Or as it says in 1 Samuel 17, 47, the battle is the Lord's. God was teaching his people, we will have victory over our sin and Satan as we look to the Lord for our strength in our battles. Okay? So, my whole point in reviewing those couple of names, and there are others, is to say there's an importance in the chronology 
of God's revelation of his names and when he chooses to reveal himself as Jehovah Makedesh. So by the time we get to this name, God is revealing something of himself to a people that are already in covenant relationship with, them, with him. That he's already provided a way to be reconciled to him. That he has already promised and provided the strength to walk in victory over sin and over Satan. So now that they've been redeemed through this name, God is revealing for what purpose they've been redeemed and the proper response of those who are truly saved. I'm going to read, I'm going to read um, Leviticus 20, 7 to 8 again. He says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Okay. So the Lord sanctifies us, or he makes us holy for two primary purposes I want to try to unpack now with you. Positional status and participation in his nature. All right, positional status meaning in relation to him, allowing us to once again be in his presence. He changes our positional status. That's one of the purposes of God making us holy. But also practicing the holiness of God. All right? Spiritual growth, being, becoming more holy like God. These are the two purposes for which God reveals this name to his people. So we've already talked a little bit about the positional status piece, right? That sin cuts us off from the presence of God. So God makes us holy so that we can enter his presence once again. Now, let me take a step back here for a moment and just talk again about this, this um, word or idea of holiness or um, sanctification in the Old Testament. The same word that's used here, or the root of it for Makedesh, is used more than 700 times throughout the Old Testament. It's actually one of the most frequently used words that's a more heavy theological concept in the Old Testament. It was used in relation to things like the Sabbath, great feasts and festivals that God prescribed, the tabernacle, which was that um, kind of collapsible uh, dwelling place for God while his people were wandering in the wilderness. For, it was used for the temple, it was used for the city of Jerusalem. All of those things are just examples of what God says were holy or that he set apart. And they had w one thing in common, all of them, to put his people in contact with him. Okay? So, for example, the Sabbath day was holy because God rested in the Sabbath. So when you and I, or God's people in the Old Testament, rest rightly in the Sabbath, we position ourselves to have contact with God, to be reunited in his presence. The great feasts and festivals God prescribed for his people, these were intended to bring them closer to God. There was a festival, one of the most uh, 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 revered in, in Israel, and even to this day amongst Jewish people, uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And this was this most highly anticipated day in Israel's calendar year. And the reason was because what the high priest would do is he would make sacrifice on behalf of all the people of Israel. So it was kind of like this wipe the slate clean day um, in Israel so that if you hadn't made it to the temple to perform your sacrifices, if there were sins of ignorance that you didn't know about in your life that were keeping you from God, the slate was wiped clean. It was a day of great celebration because it was kind of a do-over day each year for Israel, which, of course, ultimately would enhance intimacy with him, would bring them into contact with him. 
Finally, just one last example, the tabernacle or the temple was holy because it was the dwelling place of God with his people in the Old Testament. So when people entered those places, they came into contact with or into the presence of God, kind of catching what's in common with all of these things God has called holy or set apart. So God makes us holy to change our positional status from being ones who are cut off from God to ones who can once again be in the presence of God and enjoy him. And that's precious and that's huge. Now, there's a sense in which only God can do that. Only God can make us holy. And there's a sense in which we can make ourselves holy. And we see them both come through in this chapter of Leviticus, and we'll talk about them both here. But let me say first, for there to be any possibility for you and I to come near to God again after sin entered this world, it took an act that was initiated by God and him alone, the incarnation, God taking on human flesh and becoming a man, and the crucifixion, God dying, holy God dying on behalf of an unholy people. And for those who believe by virtue of what Christ alone has done, we are made holy. We see this idea come through later in this chapter, actually, in Leviticus, verse 26, where God says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I, the Lord, have separated you. Again, God has done something here that we have nothing to do with. In the New Testament, maybe even put more clearly, God says the same thing. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 10, he says, this is actually the author of Hebrews speaking, we have been sanctified, there's that word again, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Have been sanctified. It's something that's already taken place, once and done, accomplished by God alone, through Jesus, okay? You see it again in verse 14, For by a single offering, that being Jesus on the cross for us, he, God, has perfected for all time, perfected, past tense, something God has already done, but wait for it, here's the tension. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, present tense. What do you do with that? Have been perfected, have been sanctified, are being sanctified, there's the tension. You see, we've been made holy, which changes our positional status as those who can now approach God, and we are being made holy in a present tense, a process. How? Okay, back to chapter 20, verse 7 of Leviticus. It says, consecrate or sanctify yourselves and be holy. How? Very next verse. By keeping my statutes and doing them. The implication here is that now that we have been made holy in one sense so that we can approach God's throne, we are now responsible on some level when it comes to our growth in holiness. How? By putting into practice the word of God. Jesus says something similar when he's praying his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says this, as he's praying to God, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So there is a correlation between growing in holiness and God's word. We've been talking about this concept a lot as of late. Um, that it's only when we, uh, by faith, live in obedience to what God's word is instructing us to that we'll actually grow in maturity and Christlikeness. We saw it last week with Abraham, right? 
He only came to know Yahweh Yireh in an intimate, life-changing way on the path of faith and the willingness to sacrifice precisely at the point that it hurt the most. Only when he followed through with what obedience to God's word looked like in his life did he encounter God in a life-changing way. There's that principle again. But then you finish verse 8, okay? The tension is not complete yet. The mystery is not done. You finish verse 8 of Leviticus 20, and God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So verse 7, sanctify yourself and be holy. Verse 8, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. If you're confused, that's allowed. Okay? There's some mystery here. We see this tension actually all throughout Scripture. Probably one of the clearest places that it comes across is in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's words to his beloved church in Philippi when he says, work out your own salvation. To work out your salvation, that's sanctification, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see it? All right, I want to try to make a little bit more sense of it by actually doing a brief recap from the top where we've been today, okay? And see if it comes a little bit more into clarity. Talked about how God is holy, pure, perfect. But because of sin, we are not holy anymore. And because of this, we cannot be in God's presence in an ultimate sense without being destroyed. But we also talked about because Part of what God's holiness means is that his love is holy. He made a way for us to be holy while we were yet sinners, through dying as the perfect substitute in our place. So now through faith in Christ, God sanctifies us, past tense. He has made us holy once and for all. He changes our positional status. We are granted access once again into his holy presence. Think of it like a, like a, a passport, um, when you apply for a passport so that you can enter into other countries, um, you have to have a background check, and if you pass the background check, you're given the passport, and now you can kind of travel the world, right? Think of it as a holy passport that we're given, this kind of holiness God's granted us, one that's not based upon your or my credentials at all, but upon the credentials of Christ, and that passport allows us into the presence of God, okay? And nothing can change that, all right? Okay, but in order to remain now in his presence, not to remain saved, but to remain intimate with God, to remain in his presence, we must sanctify ourselves, God says, through keeping his statutes, that is putting God's word into practice, that is living holy lives. And yet, even in the present tense, it is God who sanctifies us, which means this, to bring it home, that as we walk by faith, and we live holy, set-apart lives, God meets us in the midst of our obedience to him and works in us by his power to spiritually transform you and I in a way that we could never accomplish on our own. If that's still confusing, that's okay. This may be kind of heavily theological, but theology is important because unless we have this foundation of theology, we're not going to rightly understand our identity as those who have been made holy and so now have access to the throne of God, and we're not going to understand discipleship very well either or the process of growing in Christ. That's why I'm laboring to draw these tensions out that we see here in Scripture. 
So let's bring it home, and I want to kind of nuance a little bit here uh, the purpose of God making us holy, especially when it comes to more of the external, as those of you familiar with Terra vernacular would understand, the missional component of this, okay? God makes us holy both to change our positional status, that is the holy passport, right? But also so that we can participate in his nature. We can practice and grow in holiness. And not only can we, guys, but we must. We must. Because God's purpose in our practicing holiness was not just so that we could be godly for the sake of being godly. It was not just so that we could grow in holiness so we could experience increased intimacy with him, though that's certainly a part of it. But it's a part of God's strategic plan of mission in a fallen and broken world. You and I are a part of God's strategic plan of mission to reach those who need to encounter this holy God who is the only hope of salvation for the world. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, we're told in 1 Samuel 2.2. A righteous God and Savior, there is none but me, God says of himself in Isaiah 45.21. And it is through God's holy and set-apart people, it is through God's holy and set-apart people that he bears witness of himself and about himself to the nations. This was Israel's purpose in the Old Testament, all right? They were called to be set apart from the surrounding nations so that the surrounding nations would see something different about them, forsake their own gods, and turn to the one God, the God of Israel. And the plan didn't change in the New Testament, guys. The church now serves this purpose, which is why the Apostle Peter would say something, speaking of the church, like he does in his first letter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're not a theocracy like Israel. He's just saying, you serve the same function, church, as Israel did in the Old Testament. A people for his own possession, he goes on to say. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is our purpose. This, by the way, helps to explain the severity of the consequences for certain sins that we read about in Leviticus. In the surrounding chapters of around chapter 20 here, we read of 15 different offenses that were considered capital offenses in Israel, offenses that were punishable by death. Note, that was not Moses' idea. That was God's. And that seems harsh until you realize that these practices that were being singled out were that of the surrounding pagan nations who opposed everything that God's holiness stood for. The worst being things like child sacrifices and all sorts of sexual perversions and engaging in occult practices and so on. So you can see, I hope, what was at stake. If Israel succumbed to the worldliness of the surrounding nations, not only would they lose their positional status as those who had been made holy so they could approach the presence of God and enjoy him, but their mission would also be compromised. They would look no different than anyone else. And the light of Israel that was meant to lead the other nations to life would be extinguished. It would just fast-track the world down the path of destruction that they were already on. And it's no different with the church today. All right, this isn't just a nice option that if we happen to live holy lives, God can make himself known through us to the world. But if that doesn't happen, no big deal because that was plan B always anyway. No, that's plan A. 
that God has set out for the church. Literally, what's at stake with whether God's people, the church, you and I, live holy lives, is life and death. And it's not that God's hands were tied and he couldn't have come up with some other way to do this. It's just the way that in his sovereign wisdom, he chose to reveal himself to the world. And there are real consequences when we, his people, choose to live more like the world than like Christ. Because if people don't see a different way of living that's in contrast to the ways of the world, they'll have no category for which to understand their desperate spiritual state. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, the Proverbs teach us, right? But the church is the alternative playbook to show the world that there's a different way of living. And that idea is throughout all of Scripture. I'll just point out one that will be familiar to those of you who've journeyed with us in Matthew. When Jesus says to his disciples, speaking to his followers then in the church now in Matthew 5, let your light shine, Terra Nova. Let your light shine before others. Who are the others? Presumably non-believers. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What are those but set-apartness, holy living? Why? So that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Non-believers giving glory to our Father who is in heaven, giving glory to God. Why would they do this? Because in God's people, they see something that seems otherworldly that now draws their attention and their gaze up to consider whether there is a true God in the heavens. This is why our God is Jehovah Makedesh, why he's revealed himself as the God who sanctifies and makes holy. Because there's no other way to be able to approach him, to enjoy him, to be in his presence, than through being made holy ourselves, which only happens through Jesus. And the world needs to know this. So we can be grateful for the holiness. Not everybody's grateful for the holiness of God. It's got a lot of baggage with it, that attribute. But we can be grateful for the holiness of God. His ways are so other, so radically different than the ways of the world. Some would say God's holy justice, the justice that he requires of sin, is just too extreme. All right, the fact that sin would eternally separate us from God and there's nothing that we could do about that to pay penance, to somehow make up for it, that's just overkill. That's too severe of a punishment. But we would say that because we, we're missing something. We're not understanding something about the holiness of God. But equally true, we can't fully grasp his holy love either. Because human love has limitations that are sourced in our selfishness, right? But what makes God's love holy is precisely that he's utterly selfless. And he knew that there was nothing else that we could do to mend the divide that was created between us and him because of our sin. And so he sent his son Jesus into the world, God incarnate, the one who embodied God's holiness, lived a perfect life, because the only way for you and I, for sinners to be made holy, is if someone who is holy died in our place and gave us their holiness. It's the only way. And the only one who could do that was God. And he did that for us. Many think the most painful part of the cross for Jesus was the physical suffering. And I don't want to make light of that. But I would propose to you that it thing that was most painful to Jesus on the cross was probably not the physical suffering, but the emotional and spiritual suffering that came as a result of being separated from his father because he took our sin upon himself 
but he did that so that you and I could be reunited with him through exchanging with us his holiness for our sin. So guys, we're gonna continue in our time of worship and we're gonna celebrate communion together and as we do today, I just wanna encourage you to be considering and contemplating the otherness of God as we participate in the Lord's Supper, both God's holy justice that we see in communion, but also his holy love that sets him apart from the world. For it's only in remembering what Jesus has done for us that we are going to be compelled to sanctify ourselves and to live holy lives of obedience to him. Amen? Just pray with me briefly here and then we'll continue our worship. Father, we thank you that the implications of your holiness are that you are beautiful because this world is so broken and disheartening. We also humbly acknowledge that the implications apart from some kind of intervention would be an eternal separation, even a destruction to us. Help us to feel the gravity of what it means that you're holy. We thank you also that, that your holiness means your love is so different and other than the world that you made a way for those who were sinners and just wanted nothing to do with you, to be reunited with you. The only way that could happen was by you laying down your own holy life for us, which you did. Lord, these are familiar themes, concepts, theology for many of us in here. I pray that you would um, renew those truths in a deep way in our hearts during this Advent season and build the anticipation in a fresh way as we seek to celebrate once again the greatest gift ever known to mankind, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas. We pray these things in his name.